Well, welcome, welcome to the Don't Back Down show every Wednesday from 1 to 3 on WWDB AM 860 and also available at WWDBAM.com. This is Andy Tuttleman, and we do have Stan Casaccio joining us by phone. Stan, you are on the air, so say hello to everybody. I'm sure most of the audience is going to be glad to hear that you survived your procedure well and, and are not only alive and kicking, but better than before. Uh, well, I had a very nice day at Resort Jefferson Hospital. And I don't know how this is accomplished, but I wound up getting out of bed uh, the other day uh, when they were going to release me, and my back hurt, and my knee was was swollen. So I don't know how you hurt your back and hurt your knee while you're laying down in bed. Well, I so, think uh, I do because you said that suddenly you were getting all these mysterious ads on your phone for Jefferson Orthopedics. I think that like when you go to the automobile shop to get something fixed, you come out with a different problem because they want you to come back for more. It could very well be, uh, but uh, I, I must tell you, they treated me wonderfully. Uh, every doctor that I was uh, that uh, was uh, uh, examining me, every doctor from the uh, from their uh, cardiac unit was absolutely unbelievable. So uh, I wound up having a uh, stent put in, uh, which uh, was very interesting how it built up to that. But uh, I'm doing good, other than I got a bad knee. <laughs> And my back's killing me from the bed. Uh, and the other thing is they, they, the mobile device, the mobile monitor, so, uh, they couldn't get it work, work. So I was attached to wires. So, so Stan, uh, so Stan we, we just like got a report. Feet. We just got a report from the control room. And I don't know if this is kissing up, but I hear they say that your voice is deep this time and sounding much deeper. So uh, maybe, maybe the procedure uh, deepened your voice, too. Well, I asked them to to do something with my voice, <laughs> and uh, they did because uh, I said we have a, uh, a director, uh, uh, you know, the, our tech person over there, uh, J J T, who uh, uh, has been complaining about my voice. So they did make it deeper, and they didn't charge me anything extra. So just to let them know, so I should be uh, good to go. So, uh, for this week. So, Stan, we have a couple of your friends waiting to say hello and welcome you back live in studio. We have Angelina Banks, who literally just walked in. And on the phone, Christopher Scott, our friend and uh, our, our, our podcasting buddy who joins us on the Don't Back Down show periodically. So, Chris, why don't you say hello first? Hey, thanks for the welcome there, Andy. Stan, I'm glad to hear you're up and about, but I'm a little concerned about what I'm hearing here. What in the heck is going on? Andy just said you went in and you're now better than when you went in, but you just said that you're back in knee hurt. Clearly you've been assaulted in the middle of the night and yeah, there's probably a lawsuit in here. And uh, I'm well, not sure what the misreporting here. Well, Andy, Andy represents Jefferson hospital. Just let you know. oh, that's <laughs> now I understand. Well, I thought, yeah, I, I, after paying the parking fee to visit Stan, I feel like I own a part of it, but I, I hardly represent them. Hi, Stan. Oh, hey, how you doing, Angelina? I'm it's great good. to hear your voice. It's good to hear uh, your kids, voice, everybody. too. Yeah, it's good for me to hear my voice, too. <laughs> At least your ears still work. Yeah, and my voice is deeper, and so I'm, like, ready to go. I just have to get this knee working. Oh, my God. So uh, I got to tell you. Andy, uh, my my wife is playing in a, a national tournament down in North Carolina. So I, she was debating on whether to go. She had planned a trip out. Everything's there. She did a special invitation. So uh, I said, listen, listen to what you're going to sit here in the room watching me for three days 
being upset that you're not down there. I said, do me a favor, go down there because I know you'll worry about me and you'll play bad. And, and that's what happened the first day she was fine. So now today she's all fired up and she said, I'm going to turn in my best round. I'm going to shoot par. So uh, she's all charged up today because she knows she's coming back and I'm doing okay. So uh, anyhow, so that's my, my experience uh, last week. And I will acknowledge my doctor who took a little bit of information and I've known him a long time and said, you know, I'm worried about this, go in and check it out. And uh, one of the other doctors came in and said to me, you were so lucky you have him because he made a decision that could have saved your life. And uh, I am thankful that uh, David Chapin, Dr. Chapin, was cognizant of all the possibilities and he got me there. He scared the bejeebers out of me, number one, but I'm glad he did it. So I had fun. I, you know, sat there for two hours and watched them uh, stick stuff up in, into my heart and my veins. That was really interesting. It would have been even more hey, fun you know, if Stan, I wasn't this month. Yeah, go ahead, Chris. Stan, you know, it's it's always been a real inspiration, you and Diane both, uh, the way you guys take care of yourselves, the way you, the energy you bring to the table. I know you guys are always eating right and uh, exercising probably more than me and Andy put together, for God's sake. So let's not talk about that. But uh, you guys are a real inspiration. I think it's paid off for you, you know, that you're going to be able to bounce back from this pretty quickly, hopefully. So nice job. Well, actually, and, uh, great to, uh, yeah, actually, what he told me was uh, because I have a tendency to have plaque in my veins because there's heart conditions in my family. I'm the oldest living male in my family uh, line. And he said, did you probably loosen some of the plaque and it got caught here? And that's what probably did it. Uh, because uh, he had just examined me uh, uh, two weeks before, and he said I was doing fine. So, um, you know, you, you never know, but the good Lord got me through it, and I'm still here, better or worse. And uh, we got a great show. We've got uh, Joshua Benjamin Hammer, you know, conservative uh, political commentator, uh, has his podcast. He's a syndicated uh, uh, columnist, a senior editor for uh, Newsweek. And uh, he does the Josh Hammer show, which if I suggest people take a look at that show, and, and it's a great show. So hopefully we'll join I him. I do want to make sure that one of us asks him about Bidenomics because he is a he has a, a BS in ec- economics and uh, uh, ask him about uh, Mark Houck and how, how he feels about Mark. So uh, it's, it's going to be a yeah, great interview. I think the only accolade he needs is to know that the Southern Poverty Law Center hates him. I think yeah. that covers everything right there. <laughs> you know, they are, uh, well, the only thing good about them is, I don't even know, you know, the Southern Poverty Law Center. These people right now, they've gone from a very productive group of people that were trying to bring people together, and they are creating such animosity between the races and the religions, uh, it, it, it's blowing my mind. It really is. So I'm you know, deeply upset about uh, that group of people. And people are buying into it. And it's just unbelievable. It's just like this woman who's, um, what's, uh, what's her name that's indicted Trump with uh, RICO violations and everything? Fanny Willis, Willis. Fanny Willis in Georgia. She, her father was a member of the Black Panthers. She is an out-and-out communist, uh, out-and-out uh, American hater. Stan, and, uh, look at the ties to Kamala Harris's parents and the Black Panthers. 
they were like the the originators of it. I don't know if they were the originators, but that's the the house that Kamala came into as well. And they're flooding the political. Uh, you know, if you look at this on a map, you've got these wacko DAs on both coasts: Chicago, Detroit, covered Philadelphia, falling quickly. Where are they headed to? Down to Atlanta, where they need to push this crap down there, and they're doing the same thing. They planted these DAs down there. And the damage is unbelievable. Bolshevik uh, revolution happening right here. History repeating itself. Well, they want to tear us apart, and that's the only way they can do it is uh, they have to drive wedges between everything. Uh, they are uh, godless people, that's for sure. And we know uh, uh, one of the things that uh, uh, tyranny does is the first thing these tyrants do is they eliminate God because they only want you to worship the state. And... Uh, we have a president that clearly has no clue where he is. Uh, I, I, it's just absolutely unbelievable to me uh, that the American people would vote for this man, Biden, who is a millionaire many times over. And we have a little clip with the uh, the song that uh, the, that's reached the top of the charts. Uh, what's Andy? What's the name of the? Uh, the person who sings it, I forget now. I can't remember um, his name, but we have the clip. If you want to play it right now, it's number four with, with the Awake with JP piece. Yeah, uh, the, I'm, we're going to set this up. J, Awake with JP. JP is a comedian and um, kind of a common sense conservative, and he's playing off this song uh, in a very funny way. And the whole thing is a trip. But uh, uh, if they can play number four and let's listen to it and then we can uh, discuss it. All Democrats are way down in the polls. And with midterms coming up, we are going to get annihilated if we don't do something dramatic. And now with Musk buying Twitter, we're losing our powerful way of silencing the competition. What are we going to do? We could do a much better job of listening to what the American people don't like about what we're doing and hear what they want and then make policy adjustments based on that. I've got a better idea. Why don't we form a ministry of truth? Say more. Yeah, that way we can have a regulatory body that prevents the other side from speaking their opposing points of view that the American people genuinely like better. So we outlaw any speech that hurts our party's agenda and control of power? Exactly. I like it. Um, Are we calling Josh Hammer or is he... I think that violates freedom of speech. <laughs> what? Yeah, based on the Constitution, the government can't infringe on people's right to freedom of speech, even if those in positions of power doing the governing don't like what's being said. Oh, who's a Trump supporter over there? Yeah, look at Jared with his Constitution getting ready for a Trump rally. No, it's not. It's got nothing to do with supporting Trump. Like, I don't. I voted for Biden. It's just supporting freedom of speech. Look, if you're trying to incite violence, do it on your own time. We have no time for fascism in these meetings. You are either with us or you're racist. And you're not racist. Are you, Jared? Well, no. Great. Glad you concur that we need a ministry of truth. But we can't just call it that because what we're doing would be really obvious. So what should we call it? Well, according to the principle of doublespeak, we should call it the opposite of what it is in order to prevent people from seeing what it really is. How about the Disinformation Governance Board? I love it. That's still really obvious. Nope. People will never figure it out. Yeah, when governing, we find it's best to assume people are way dumber than we think they are. Put it into action. The Disinformation Governance Board. Taking away Americans' right to freedom of speech 
that's not okay, and that's certainly not the right way to win elections. You're right. We need to do more to win the elections. Are you thinking what I'm thinking? Dominion? Exactly. Wait, what'd you say? Oh, nothing. Just Putin's a bad guy. You know, he's the worst. So, uh, Stan, you signaled me that we played the wrong clip, but it was still very good, so we let it roll. Um, not sure which one it was because I thought it was number four. But I can tell you that the song is by Oliver Anthony and it's called Richmond North of Richmond. So, uh, yeah, that, yeah, I just I just pulled it up on my uh, computer and it, I definitely have the right. Uh, I'm not sure which one he played, how he put that clip up, but that was the wrong clip. No, we called Anyhow. it. So it's, it's, it's not TJ's fault and can't blame him for his voice interpretation. So, TJ, go ahead and play the song. Hi, I'm one of the rich men north of rich men, people in D.C. Ever hear of us? The new song, Rich Men North of Richmond" by Oliver Anthony is spreading a lot of misinformation about us very wealthy yet very caring individuals who happen to live north of Richmond. It's the number one song in the country and we don't like it. I mean, we're just out here selflessly trying to serve the public's best interest. But the song tries to paint us in a negative light, saying things like, I've been selling my soul, working all day, overtime hours for bullshit pay. Yeah, bullshit pay that helps people. It's in your best interest. How else are you going to own nothing and be happy about it? If you're paid well, you can't just own nothing and getting paid well so you can own things. Like, that's not going to make you happy. Yeah, the new world is part of the Great Reset. It helps people out. And living in the new world with an old soul, we have done our absolute best to disconnect people from God and their souls. Hashtag communism will work this time. So even believing you have a soul is a thought crime, according to us. It's the number one threat to our democracy. Because your dollar ain't shit, and it's taxed to no end. Inflation just kind of accidentally happens when you print trillions of dollars, and we think taxes are too low. Did you know that last year some people took home some of their income? Selfish. When all of that income could be going to Ukraine, which is then fed back to the military-industrial complex, which is then fed back to us, the rich men north of Richmond. Which politicians look out for miners? Not just miners on an island somewhere. Look out for miners and not just on an island somewhere? That is very offensive to all of us who are on Epstein's flight logs. It's practically hate speech. And the insinuation that child trafficking is a problem? That's just a crazy conspiracy theory. That's why. So that that was a humorous interpretation, obviously, of the song. But most people have heard it by now, and that's going right to the top of the charts. In fact, the two top songs right now in America are both country music telling the truth about what we're living through. And I take that as a positive sentiment because it, it, it shows that people are waking up and beginning to realize what's going on in this country. So, Stan, great, great for putting that on the list. Yeah, that, that, that was uh, the song is a very... Uh... I mean, he sings it with very deep emotion. The biggest problem we have, and you can see it in the flash mobs that have been uh, attacking department stores and everything in the city, 
that there is no consequences to these people in the cities, and they just keep on voting and uh, uh, many, many times. Uh, and uh, they, you know, most of the problems with these votes occur in these big Democratic-run cities. That crime is just up the wazoo, and you just wonder what's going on. I, I, I just can't believe. It. And of course, we have the song later on, "81 Votes My You Know What." Um, that was one of the top songs also, uh, because if anybody thinks that Joe Biden got 81 million votes, uh, just look at the man. It's just an impossibility. So, so, uh, so Stan, um, I'm happy to say that our guest is available and ready to come on the air. So uh, why don't we introduce Josh Hammer right now? Josh Hammer is a, a senior editor at large at, at Newsweek, uh, syndicated columnist and host of the Josh Hammer Show, uh, which is a podcast on Newsweek. That can be found at newsweek.com slash podcast slash the Josh, uh, Josh Hammer Show, also on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And this fellow has a resume that is long and solid. He's be, he writes everywhere. His opinions are amazing. Uh, he has served as a, a, a law clerk for the Judge James, uh, Honorable James C. Ho on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit and worked at one of the largest law firms in the world, Kirkland & Ellis, before joining Newsweek um, and has served some time with the Daily Wire. So we'd love to welcome to the Don't Back Down show conservative uh, commentator Josh Hammer. Welcome to the show, Josh. Gentlemen, it's a pleasure to be with you, and I appreciate that very fulsome introduction. Well, I had to whittle it down. I had like five pages of things I could have said about you. Uh, <laughs> but but you're, you're joined today by Stan Casaccio, who is our, our host. He's on the phone. He's recovering from a recent procedure, but he's full of vim and vigor and ready to go. In studio with me, Andy Teitelman, is uh, – uh, Angelina Banks, a frequent co-host uh, for the show. So, and we and we have on the phone uh, Christopher Scott, who is himself a podcaster. And we are we are all just thrilled to have a chance to talk to you and and have our audience experience you. For those who haven't yet, but we're highly recommending that you do. Uh, I've I read like twenty Josh Hammer reports in the last couple of days just to <laughs> get ready to talk to you. And I don't even know where to begin. Um, I, I'd, I'd like to begin maybe uh, by talking about. Um, Bidenomics a little bit, because besides being a constitutional attorney, you also have a bachelor's in economics and finance. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. I studied economics in undergraduate at Duke, and then I worked in antitrust research for a couple of years between college and law school, uh, living in Washington, D.C. at that time. So I don't know. Yeah, if but, you, if, but, if, but, but Andy, there's nothing to talk about because Bidenomics is perfect. It's uh, everybody's making all kind of money. So I don't even know why we're wasting time talking about Bidenomics. <laughs> so, Josh, can you give course, us your take? <laughs> of course, I of course I say that kiddingly, obviously. <laughs> now we all thought you were serious, Stan. I'm, I, my God. <laughs> so, Josh, can you give us a take your take on the current uh, status of the American economy, whether we call it Bidenomics or Insaneonomics? Uh, where, where, what's your view on it? I mean, what is there to say other than that it's terrible? I mean, last summer you saw the CPI annualized inflation index at its peak was the peak was around last July or so, reached nine point one percent on an annualized basis. I mean, we have not seen those numbers obviously since the stagflation of the Jimmy Carter era since the late nineteen seventies, and obviously then in the early nineteen eighties, Ronald Reagan working hand in hand with. Then Fed Chairman Paul Volcker managed to uh, heroically, I would say, managed to get inflation down. But we, I mean, it's been 40 years. It's literally been 40 years since Americans have seen these kind of increases in prices at the pump, whether it's gasoline or increases in prices for just basic goods 
at the supermarket. I mean, I remember seeing charts last year. The Wall Street Journal had this interesting graphic. Like, like basic goods, like eggs and chicken, were like somewhere between 20 to 35 percent up on an annualized basis. I mean, most Americans are just struggling to get by right now. And that's particularly so because as inflation has skyrocketed, real wage growth has not necessarily kept up. You've seen some wage growth. It depends on the industry, depends on the company, obviously. But typically speaking, looking at a broader perspective, most of the wage growth has just not been sufficient to keep up with inflation. So there's any number of reasons I, I, I fear to be quite pessimistic about the current state of, of the American economy and the president's somewhat cartoonish attempts to get this Biden economics hashtag out there notwithstanding. So that's basically my take. Well, there's a, there is a slight difference, at least from my experience, what happened in the 1970s under Carter. That was probably incompetence and bad policy. This go around, it seems like it's intentional. Uh, the things that they're doing are so counterintuitive, just printing money hand over fist, pouring money into uh, useless pits where we're not going to get any benefit from it and driving prices through the roof. Uh, it seems like they're doing it intentionally. Maybe. I mean, that, that, that's taking such a deeply cynical view, of course, of the president. And But but like perhaps that cynicism is justified. I mean, I, I, I look, there's. Every time nowadays that you think that it can't be worse, sometimes it turns out that it actually is worse. I mean, part of the, you know, part of what's going on here is the Biden administration, which really is just the third term of the Obama administration. Uh, you know, there was this wonderful interview. Uh, David Samuels interviewed a historian named David Garrow. It's published a tablet magazine maybe a week or two ago. Got a lot of eyeballs, a lot of clicks, at least in my circles. And one of the takeaways of this interview was that it really does seem like Barack Obama is calling a lot of the shots behind the scenes, which is something that I have speculated for a while now. I mean, Obama, you recall, he broke tradition. You know, it's kind of a, it's kind of an unwritten rule, a, a tradition where the president, upon transferring power peacefully to his successor, will physically leave Washington, D.C. Presidents don't typically stay in D.C. They go back to wherever it was they were living beforehand or find greener pastures elsewhere. But Barack Obama, by contrast, has stayed for the most part. He still has Martha's Vineyard estate, but he's mostly stayed in Washington, D.C. And I, I, I say all that because if you go back to the Obama era, yeah, there was definitely a lot of cynicism in the Obama era in the Obama White House when it came to economic policy in particular as well. And really what you're seeing is just kind of the logical culmination of Keynesian economic theory, of orthodox Keynesian theory, which believes heavily in taxing and spending, which believes heavily in deficit spending, I should add, and, and basically taken to its logical conclusion, and the monetary policy equivalent of this would be so-called MMT, modern monetary theory, which basically says that deficits don't matter, that debt doesn't matter, because, you know, for the U.S., the U.S. is the reserve currency and all that. But literally all of this is being challenged. First of all, I mean, Fitch just downgraded the U.S. credit rating. So clearly some credit rating agencies think that deficits and debt do matter. And, you know, more more generally speaking, I mean, inflation has, like I mentioned, has been through the roof. So clearly, you, you know, the people are feeling the price of all of this botched Keynesian orthodoxy. So, I mean, whether it's pure incompetence or outright malice is somewhat unclear to me, but perhaps it's some kind of murky combination thereof. Well, I can tell you that sitting right in front of me is a Gateway Pundit article from about a week ago, a few days ago, I should say. House Oversight Committee releases bank records on Hunter Biden's payments from Russia and Kazakh officials, 20 million in payments. 
Perhaps that's where my cynicism is deriving from. That and a combination of the the extra, I'm not even going to say unconstitutional, the extra constitutional behavior from the uh, Department of Justice under, uh, under Biden-Obama, um, and now the state of Georgia. Um, so, you know, maybe maybe we can uh, segue a little bit into what's currently going on with these indictments against former President Trump. You you indicated that it was a breaking of tradition uh, for Obama to remain in D.C. after the end of his term. Normally they do leave. That is the common practice. President Trump left when his term ended. Uh, he may not have left with, with a smile on his face, but he left. Uh, and nonetheless, um, uh, where 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 do you stand, and and what is your view of the serial indictments against Donald Trump? And regardless of where you stand on his policies or him as an individual, where how do you view this process that we're living through, where we have now a four time indicted former president? Um, I'd like to hear your thoughts on that. Well, there's a lot to say on this. Obviously, I mean, just the the highest at the highest level, my top line take is that this really is just the logical culmination of what the, the ruling class, the Democratic Party, and many of societal elites in this country have tried to do to Trump ever since he first went down that escalator in 2015, really starting with the, with the Russia collusion delusion and Carter Page and all of that sordid business in, in, in 2016. I mean, they've been trying to get him for years now, truly, truly for years, right? I mean, going back to the the Bob Mueller, Jim Comey, they tried multiple impeachments. Uh, I mean, I, so uh, there has really not been any other figure that I'm aware of in modern American history that the powers that be have tried so hard via all sorts of lawfare, the political arena, the ballot, by all the above, just trying to just ultimately excise someone from the corridors of American public life. So that's my that's my top your take here. And obviously, we're in uncharted waters. I mean, this is, you know, the Alvin Bragg indictment, which was the first of these four, the one in New York City back in late March, early April, that was a crossing of the Rubicon. The title of my column that I wrote that week was The Point of No Return. That was the the title that I chose because this is truly at this point uncharted waters. I mean, one, one indictment would have brought us into uncharted waters. Four indictments, I mean, who knows what? So uh, clearly, I, I mean, I, at a certain level, it, it clearly, clearly is the everything that Republicans say it is, is the politicization of law enforcement. It is, it is the weaponization of law enforcement to punish enemies of the ruling class regime. That That is very clearly what is going on here. Now, having said all that, um, I, clearly, you know, uh, you try to go case by case, indictment by indictment, trying to assess each one on its own merit. The former president's conduct in many instances, if I'm being uh, – I'll put it politely, certainly has not always helped himself, You know, whether it's uh, ignoring a grand jury subpoena, as he allegedly did in the context of the classified document indictment at Mar-a-Lago, or obviously his conduct here in Georgia pertaining to Brad Roffensperger and all of that. So he hasn't exactly made it uh, hard for, for his opponents. He's oftentimes made it easy for his opponents. But uh, the Georgia indictment and the Mar-a-Lago one, to me, are, are the two more more serious ones. I think the conduct at the Mar-a-Lago classified documents indictment, the conduct described is potentially the most serious. But because of the nature of the, of the juror pool there in Fulton County, Georgia, and the kind of complicated nature of how a pardon works in Georgia, the governor cannot simply pardon someone. It's a very complicated system. That, to me, is the potentially most dangerous as far as him actually facing potential jail time. But look, broadly speaking here, 
this is not the kind of thing that happens in the greatest country in the world, you know, uh, liberty and justice for all. It, it very clearly is taking us down a path of sub-Saharan Africa or, you know, Latin America, tin pot dictatorships. And as an American patriot, it makes me profoundly sad. Yes, I think we can all agree with that. And even Trump himself with the uh, when he was threatening to jail Hillary Clinton for erasing her hard drive, talk about violating uh, the Records Act. Uh, you know, she was secretary of state. She she had an unsecure server. No one's denying that she made light of it. Um, I forget how many thousands of emails were ultimately deleted, some of which they were able to reclaim. Um, perhaps one could argue that's what cost her the 2016 election, but it certainly didn't cost her, cost her anything criminally. And that conduct far outshines anything that Trump did regarding uh, documents that were at Mar-a-Lago. And one can't forget there is a big difference. He was president of the United States when he took possession yep. of those documents. He had the right to declassify them. I believe they're arguing that they were declassified. So um, I'm OK. He violated a subpoena. Perhaps there's civil penalties for that. Certainly this criminal prosecution is over the top in this situation. Don't you agree? Yeah, certainly. I, I, I very much agree with that. I mean, you know, let's not recall that Jim Comey literally made up a legal standard when he let Hillary Clinton off the hook in the summer of 2016 for her 33,000 roughly emails illicitly detained on her home server. I mean, you know, going back to criminal law, your first year of law school, you learn about what uh, the lawyers call your mens rea, your subjective mentality, which is important for a prosecutor to know to understand what crime to possibly be charged with. If I recall, when Jim Comey, as the FBI director, let off Hillary Clinton in summer 2016, she, she literally made up – or excuse me, he literally made up a, re, a mens rea. He called it, if I recall, uh, it was like extreme carelessness or something like that. I mean that's not, that's not a real term. I mean that's, that's literally – a, a, a fictitious term fabricated by Jim Comey for the purpose of one for one purpose only, which is to let Hillary Clinton off the hook. So uh, clearly the same standard is not being applied. What you are saying about classified documents is totally true. The president has plenary power to declassify documents in a way that, for example, Mike Pence, when he was vice president or Joe Biden, when he was a senator or vice president, they did not have that power. All of that is very much true. I just say that some of the conduct alleged there was was unseemly because the allegations are that he actually ignored grand jury subpoenas, which which regardless of the constitutionality or legality is something that you really are not supposed to do. So it's more process or obstruction than the than the underlying substance in in that particular case. But again, as far as kind of the actual likelihood of former President Trump literally facing possible jail time, I do think the Georgia case. Is is perhaps the most likely, and I do not say that because of the of the legal gravitas of it. I, I think the notion of of charging someone like the former president with, with a RICO statute is pretty wild. I mean, RICO, let's not forget, was you know that was implemented at the federal level quite literally as a response to organized crime. So they're basically calling him a mob boss, is what the prosecutors in Georgia are are saying there. But because of what I mentioned about the nature of the jury pool there and the kind of complicated nature of the pardon power. If I were Trump's lawyers, that's what I would be the most concerned with, I think. So, Josh Hammer, will you stay with us past the commercial break? There's much more we'd like to address with you. You bet. All right, here we go to commercial. 
The first picture online when selling your home is of the outside. So what outside photo do you want to show when your home goes on the market? One showing lush landscaping with beautiful flowers and trees blooming or one with snow on the ground? Diane Cardano here from the Cardano team. And one of my top home selling strategies is to take beautiful, eye-catching exterior photos of your home when it looks its best on the outside and then store them in the computer until you're ready to list your home. Why not have eye-catching photos showcasing the beauty of your home anytime you put it on the market? Now's the perfect time to capture your home's beauty as spring is here and summer's coming. Call me, Diane Cardano, to reserve your free photo shoot. We'll take stunning exterior photos that will lure hundreds of potential buyers to request a showing, and you'll have multiple offers, and then I'll negotiate the price up thousands over asking. Make your home stand out. Give it a chance to sell for top dollar and put money in your pocket. Call 215-576-8666 or go to DianeCardano.com. You were born to fight. And you're welcome back to the Down, Don't Back Down show, uh, sitting in for Stan, well, sitting with Stan Casaccio, who's remote today, is Andy Tuttleman, and in the studio with me is Angelina Banks, and we've been, and we have Chris Scott on the phone with us as well, um, and we've been talking to Josh Hammer, who is a senior editor at large for Newsweek, has his own uh, podcast at Newsweek called The Josh Hammer Show, amongst many, many other things that he does and we're having a fantastic conversation and I and Josh I kind of want to switch gears a little bit I'm going to hand this off to Angelina who has some things that she'd like to talk to you about so you know we're kind of talking about these multi-level tiers of justice not only for our former president Donald Trump but also in our in our cities and a lot of grumbling comes with that with uh, the Soros funded DAs so Josh you recently started um work on a new project. Uh, it looks like in May that you uh, are working with a nonprofit called Jews Against Soros. Do you want to talk to us a little bit about that? Absolutely. Yeah. So my buddy Will Sharp and I founded this group a few months ago now, Jews Against Soros. I mean, it, basically what it sounds like it is, is exactly what it is. So for for years and years, you have heard this refrain from the left, from apologists for criminals, even from perhaps on the margins, maybe even some fringy libertarian types, which is that to in to invoke the name of George Soros, particular in the context of crime and, and the various malfeasance that he directly subsidizes in America and abroad, is to somehow kind of invoke anti-Semitism. And it's ludicrous on its face. It's absolutely ludicrous on its face. Uh, Will, my co-founder, and I are, are, are both Jewish. We are, we are proud Jews. We are traditionally observant Jews in many ways and whatnot. And, and it, was, it was time just for some conservative, pro-law and order Jews, especially folks like me and Will who have legal backgrounds, to, to get out there and say this is garbage, that you are not necessarily anti-Semitic for criticizing George Soros, for God's sake. Now, uh, to be clear, you can be. I mean, I don't want to paint with an overly broad brush, obviously – I'm not talking about every instance here, but simply to to criticize Soros-funded prosecutors, as Ron DeSantis did here in Florida, where I live, Marco Rubio. There's been any number. It's been so many examples over the years where people criticize the deeply pernicious influence of of George Soros. You, you are allowed to do that without being accused of anti-Semitism. In fact, as an Orthodox rabbi by the name of Joe Fisher wrote in a wonderful New York Post op-ed about a year and a half ago, he actually said that. Not only is it not anti-Semitic to criticize George Soros, it's actually a mitzvah, which in our religion means it's, it's a positive good, actually. It's really it's, it's a commandment, actually, more so than, than something that you should shy away from. So 
we were really happy to kind of get this grassroots coalition going, just trying to collect some signatures, some email addresses. Maybe we'll throw out some merchandise there if we can get to that point. But uh, for now, it's kind of a fun little side project that Will and I have been working on. And look, you know, I, I mean, there's been so many other cities that I visited just in the past few years, New York, Chicago, Philly, San Francisco, that have these Soros-funded prosecutors. And the story is the exact same everywhere, which is urban decay, looting, vandalism, empty stores. It's sad. It's really sad. And it's time for a course correction. It's very overdue. I agree. I agree 100 percent. I think it's always important to question any type of spearhead or forefront of a movement, especially a person that dumps millions, hundreds of millions of dollars into our election cycle. Myself being a minority, it's you know frustrating when I go to criticize the BLM movement and people say, well, you're racist. You can't do that. And it's like, well, I'm black. I, I can. I can question how we're really helping the people. And I think it's the same thing with gays against groomers. Just because you are a homosexual doesn't mean that you have to subscribe to pedophilia or, or maps or anything like that. So I think it's important that someone just questions a main influence that may or may not be acting in our best interest. So kudos to you and Will for starting that nonprofit. The interesting yeah. thing, if I can jump, the interesting thing, uh, uh, Josh, is that if you read uh, Soros's own biography about his role in World War II and his father's role in World War II, it was, uh, I mean, he talks about his father giving the names to the Nazis as they took him away to the camp. And his, and his argument was, well, that was going to happen anyhow, so there was nothing we can do about it. And then when he followed the people that were taking the stuff out of the Jewish homes and, and bringing them back to Germany, uh, he said, well, I never took anything, but what, what, what was I going to do? There was never, never an, he, he never was sorry about it uh, at all. So I, I mean, this, this man really never stood up for any of his traditions or any of the people around him. Um, so saying, calling him out on it is just, to me, is just something that should happen. This guy is not a nice guy. He's uh, around the world. As you, as you know, he's taken, he's made his money deflating value. I believe he still has a arrest warrant. If he goes to Hungary, they want to throw him in jail because what he did in Hungary. Yeah, if I may, it's actually possibly even worse than what you just described. And, um, uh, you know, I've I, not done a, a deep dive over his family's conduct in World War II, but my understanding is that much of what you said is true, uh, no doubt about that. I mean, they, it, it seems like they did not comport themselves well when Hungary was under Nazi occupation. But kind of fast forwarding to the present day, you know, it's worth pointing out that, you know, when, when, when Will and I introduced Jews against Soros, I, I did this this tweet thread kind of explaining what it was, and it got a lot of play on Twitter. Uh, one of the folks who liked a lot of my tweets was a man by the name of Amichai Shikli, who is in the Israeli government right now. He is Israel's current minister, I believe, of, of uh, uh, diaspora affairs or combating anti-Semitism, something like that. And uh, it's worth pointing out that the vast majority of Israelis themselves would agree that George Soros is an enemy of the people because among George Soros' other hats that he wears, he's, he's feeding horrible things here in America. He does all sorts of garbage in Europe, including his, his native Hungary. But he's profoundly anti-Israel. He is one of the biggest donors of anti-Israel, pro-Palestinian groups, really, in the, in, in the entire world. I mean, J Street, which is probably the single largest 
I mean, they call themselves quote unquote pros, pro Israel. They are anything but that. It's a, it's kind of a Palestinian apologist, quote unquote, think tank, activist shop, whatever they purport to be. George Soros is the single biggest bankroller of J Street and has been ever since that woeful organization came into existence about 15 years ago or so. And there's any number of other examples. Soros-connected entities have been connected to the PFLP, the, P, the, the People's Front for the Liberation of Palestine, which is a U.S.-EU-recognized terrorist organization. I mean, I could go on and on. Uh, but, you know, this is not someone whatsoever who seems to be at all proud of, of, of his Jewish heritage, who has done anything whatsoever to kind of boost the Jewish state of Israel. It's, it's quite actually the exact opposite of that. And that definitely makes the idea that criticizing him as anti-Semitic all the more garbage. Can I mention something? Uh, you were on Jonathan Tubin's uh, show not too long ago, and y you had a really interesting perspective on the Ukraine war and what was going on there. And uh, I, I would like our listeners to hear about that. I, I, I thought you were, I really deeply appreciated how you kind of strung that together. So I'd, I'd like to have you talk a little bit about what is going on in Ukraine, because to me, it's a slow walk to World War III. It kind of almost reminds me of World War I and how we slow walked it to uh, 60 million people dying in World War I that has created all the problems we have today. So, uh, uh, if you can maybe uh, uh, talk about that a little bit. Sure. Yeah. So, uh, look, my thoughts, I've been skeptical of the Ukraine boondoggle since very close to day one. I thought that there was a there was a strong case, not an overwhelming case, but at least a strong case to provide the Ukrainians with arms at the very beginning of the conflict, things like that, when it looks like the Zelensky government in Kiev might actually be fully toppled or overthrown. And... I'm not a huge fan of, of Zelensky for, for various reasons. In fact, I've criticized him many times, but my, you know, the thinking at the time was that at a bare minimum, he is preferable to having a Putin-installed puppet, kind of like Lukashenko in Belarus. So at the very, very beginning of the conflict, we're talking here February to May of last year or so, I, there, there definitely was a case for kind of going all in for the very first while when it looked like the survival of the current regime in Kiev might actually be under assault. But... Starting around mid-May or so of last year, there was this time, was a few days, the Russians had surrounded Kiev with tanks. They were 25, 30 miles outside the city. They were kind of surrounded 360 degrees or so, and they were thinking of going in for the kill. And instead, they aborted for you know, military tactics reasons, uh, reasons Putin clearly just didn't think that he had, that he had the willpower, the firepower, whatever, to go for the kill. And ever since then, the vast majority of the fighting to this day has centered around the Donbass regions of eastern Ukraine and the Crimean Peninsula. And the latter, Crimea, it's worth pointing out, was for most of its history over the past, call it 500 years or so, was actually Russian. So, uh, you know, me as an American looking at this and looking at the fact that there's no real contestation for the Zelensky regime's survival and looking at the fact that we're now at this point squabbling over towns in eastern Ukraine or the Crimean Peninsula that might be 50-50 Ukrainian-Russian ethnic split, might be 60-40, 70-30, whatever. The, what is the American national interest exactly in sending off tens of billions of dollars? I think we're now totally, in total, I think we're $150 billion plus in the amount of money and arms and M4 tanks and missile defense and all of the above that, that we have sent to these guys. And, you know, in a situation like this, where we're, we're now, uh, God forbid, a year and a half 
into this conflict where we are seemingly just poking the bear ever further of Putin, who for all the, for how terrible he is, he still controls the world's largest nuclear arsenal by number of nuclear weapons. You know, shouldn't a more prudent American diplomacy and statecraft be oriented towards trying to kind of give both of these guys, Putin and Zelensky, some sort of off-ramp, some sort of way to save face and ultimately reach conciliation and peace? I mean, to me, that's what American statecraft and foreign policy here would look like. Unfortunately, we have this ridiculously oversimplified framing where the quote-unquote free world has to go all in for quote-unquote liberal democracy against authoritarianism, notwithstanding the fact that, you know, Ukraine under Zelensky is not exactly a liberal democracy, but that's a conversation perhaps for another day. So, yeah, Josh, what exactly in your view is happening in the Ukraine? Because I am baffled by the conduct of this war on both sides. I I, I don't know what reports to believe. Uh, Even some of the video that is shown to us, the limited amount of video about the war, uh, in some cases, people claim has been video taken from prior wars and isn't even the actual fighting that's going on in in Ukraine. Um, I have a couple of questions. Number one, and this is foremost to keep in the back of your mind as you answer number two first, is how close are we to a nuclear confrontation because of this war? And second, how is it even possible that that Russia has not completed um, its work in Ukraine by now, not finished this war, despite all of the support, and I put that in quotes, of the of the West in uh, in the conduct? Apparently, depending on who you listen to, um, Ukraine is is depleted in terms of the number of men that they have to be able to throw on the front lines, and it seems to me they should have been steamrolled by now by Russia. So. Uh, what actually is happening there? Why is this war still even going on? Well, it's obviously hard to say because information from that part of the world is notoriously tough to get, or at least reliable information is notorious, notoriously tough to get. But if you go back to June a couple months ago where Prigozhin and his Wagner group had this uprising that almost culminated potentially in a mutiny there in, in Moscow – I mean, clearly there is a profound lack of morale right now in the Russian military, and there's probably a profound lack of actual skilled military tacticians, of strategists, of generals, of people who have both the means, the willpower, the knowledge, all of the above, to actually prosecute a war effort. So, you know, it, it definitely does reveal Russia to an extent to be somewhat of a paper tiger. I, I, I say somewhat because we also just can't ignore the fact that they do have the largest nuclear arsenal in the world, but clearly they are not anywhere near as powerful as they were at the height of the Cold War. I think that would be um, certainly an, an understated way of putting it. So to that extent, it's, it's, it's been somewhat reassuring. So that does militate in favor of, of a lower likelihood of, of this actually reaching a full-scale nuclear conflagration. God forbid, of course, we should all pray that that never happens in our, in our lifetime. But, uh, you know, especially if Putin feels threatened, I mean, if kind of these Wagner group mutiny-esque situations, if that ever were to kind of pop up again, who knows? I mean, people who are possibly going to be deposed of power tend to sometimes do crazy things. So that would be what I'm most scared of. But I I, I do think that the war has exposed Russia to be somewhat of a paper tiger in many respects. Well, I think that's... I think that's because he hired as a consultant um, General Mark Milley to help run the Russian uh, military. 
No, no, Stan, I think that's a mistake. Millie's in charge of the American transgender military program right now. Oh, that's right. Well, maybe that's what they're doing, converting the transgender military in um, in Russia. I don't know. So No, no, not I mean, in Russia. I think Russia is standing pretty tall on, on the – not going in that particular direction. They're, they're letting us implode on ourselves. Uh, but, Josh, this is another convenient op- – there's so many topics. I think you've opined on virtually everything that there is. And uh, where do well, you – st- Wait, that's because he has a national podcast and he is – everybody just listens to him because he can – he's really well – uh, versed in all this stuff, as you can see. Well, I'm having I'm having a great time talking to Josh That's Hammer, great. and this has been this has been a great interview. But Josh, Thank yeah, you guys. yeah, switching gears a little bit, uh, where what is going on in our country from the standpoint of societal standards? I mean, this whole transgenderism thing—it's one thing to say, you know, live and let live, go ahead enjoy yourself in your private life. It's another thing to spread it across uh, into our universities with men swimming on women's swim teams, like it here in Philadelphia at the university of Pennsylvania, um, it, it, bringing it into our, our public schools with pornographic and, and homosexual pornography in the libraries, the kind of thing that just a few years ago would have gotten you arrested if you showed this kind of stuff to children. And yet we are called, uh, we're the bad guys for raising the, this up and, and being in opposition to it. Um, what, how, how do you explain the current uh, social climate in the United States and how did we get here? Well, look, I mean, that's the question that's befitting probably like a thousand word treatise, like a, a like a like a book rather than, you know, an exchange. like this. But I, I, I think, you know, this didn't happen overnight. I mean, you know, my friend Christopher Rufo has a new book out where he kind of traces the arc of history of the of of kind of uh, Gramsci, the Italian Marxist theorist, who famously spoke of a quote unquote march to the institutions, and that that march has seemingly culminated. I, I mean, it started really in earnest in in the 1960s, but in many ways, kind of the New Deal era laid the foundations for it. You might even argue the Wilson administration going back a little further with the advent of the modern administrative state apparatus. But the, the left march through the institutions at, at this point has basically reached fruition. I, I mean, leftist power, by the time that Joe Biden was sworn in in January 2021, had been able to reach the apex in, in all of the corridors, whether it's the academia, the, the higher education, whether it's Wall Street, Fortune 500 companies more broadly, Silicon Valley, Hollywood, you name it. And the reason that they were able to do this is, is complicated. Part of it gets down to kind of old school grassroots organizing, kind of Saul Alinsky style community organization, activism, all of that. But they really have attained a level of cultural power that I'm not sure any other movement in modern really just in general in American history has ever been able to attain. And that, and that should, that should terrify us all. And, and that kind of directly relates also to what we were talking about earlier about how Trump in particular is, is now kind of the tip of the spear of this because they're taking that kind of cultural power. And now they're, they're choosing to demonstrate their might by exercising it in, in, in previously unprecedented ways in, in the legal prosecutorial arena as well, simply because they can't. That's the most dangerous part of all, because they can, because they know that they have so much power at this point that the repercussions for overstepping as they are doing are, are, are seemingly non-existent. Now, 
the cultural stuff, you know, whether we're talking about the, tra the transgender phenomenon, this, I this idea of a, a, this, a horrible idea of pornography, for God's sake, in children's schools. A lot of this gets back to what I was saying a few minutes ago, kind of Gramscian early Marxist theory. I mean, people kind of tend to forget that the very idea of no-fault divorce, which was a popular policy implemented in the liberalization of the 1960s, no-fault divorce was actually given to us by a Bolshevik Soviet social theorist around the time of the Russian Revolution, towards huh. the end of, of, of World War I. I say all that because it's worth pointing out and underscoring that breaking up the family and getting the government and the state to control the family has always been the goal of the Marxists ever since day one. That is very much, I think, kind of the theoretical kind of undergird of the transgender phenomenon in certain respects. And it absolutely is what you see happening in public schools all across America when you talk, when you, when you talk about, you know, transing the kids without so much as parental notification, let alone consent. So that's kind of my broader take, I guess. Wow, that, that's, that was really well done considering we didn't have time for a full treatise. You really knocked it out. I, I imagine you've heard of Yuri Bezmenov. He was the Soviet uh, defector, I think, former KGB, who arrived in the United States uh, sometime in the late 70s or early 1980s. And there's a famous interview that is very readily available on the, uh, on the Internet, which is right up there with the uh, farewell speech of President Eisenhower in terms of warning us about what was to come. And he literally said everything you just said. So it, they, under, you know, destroy the family, destroy the culture, and you can take over the country without firing a shot. And unfortunately, he was prescient, uh, what, 40-some years ago. And it's, it's unbelievable. Uh, now, we would be remiss if we did not uh, bring up the topic of the 2024 election cycle and possibly – um, you know, we would love to hear your views on, on, on the Republican candidates who are out there. I know that you are, based on what I've read, you are neither, neither a MAGA Trumper nor a never Trumper. You seem to have a very balanced view of President Trump. And I'd like to hear how you see the lineup of potential candidates, well, not potential, lineup of candidates and um, and and what you're, what you're thinking uh, the future of the Republican Party is in the 2024 cycle. Yeah, I think that's accurate. I, I would neither call myself MAGA. I am very, on the other hand, I'm extremely far from never Trump. I was an, I was an enthusiastic supporter of his presidency. I, I wrote countless articles during his impeachment, uh, pointing out the fallacies, the, the nonsensical arguments that were being espoused there. I wrote an op-ed for the New York Post shortly before the 2020 election calling Trump the most pro-Jewish president of all time. I think Trump himself retweeted that on Twitter at the time. So, I mean, I, I, I was really kind of all in for the guy's 2020 re-election. Um, my own personal preference this time around, I've been fairly open, is my governor here in Florida, Ron DeSantis, whose leadership I partially moved to Florida to live under. I mean, that is how transformative in many ways I, I view everything that he has accomplished in Florida from, from the COVID to, to picking prudential culture war fights with, with, with the Disney company, DEI, CRT. I mean, uh, you know, uh, New College of Florida and Sarasota trying to like literally kind of recapture the institutions from, from a rightist, not a leftist perspective. He, he really has been in many ways, I think, the tip of the spear of, of what it means to actually successfully wield power from a right-wing perspective at the state level. And I, and I just think very, very highly of the guy. 
Uh, obviously, um, uh, I, I've been waiting, uh, and perhaps we'll be waiting, what we shall see, for him to kind of catch on uh, at the national level. The polling in Iowa tends to be a little closer than it is at the national level. Uh, the pro-DeSantis super PAC never backs down, has a formidable grassroots army there in in Iowa. So, you know, we'll see what happens. Uh, obviously, the wild card in the room is Trump's legal trouble. I mean, what will happen, uh, the, you know, uh, the DA in Fulton County, Georgia, Sandy Wilson is going to make him surrender, apparently. What does that look like? So there's a there's a lot of wild cards up in the air right now. Um, but, you know, what, what I've said before, and I, I, I'm happy to say again, is, uh, you know, I am a pretty right wing guy. I mean, uh, if, if DeSantis is not the nominee, Trump would be my preference for sure. I mean, there's really no one else in that field that I'm particularly excited about. It's hard to get excited about someone like a Mike Pence or a Nikki Haley or something like oh. that. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> Excuse me for that. How about uh, Vivek Ramaswamy? I mean, he seems to be an up and comer. Uh, do you think he's auditioning for a vice presidential spot or does he have a viable chance in this uh, to, to actually get the uh, nomination for president? I have very strong thoughts on Vivek Ramaswamy, in part because I've had personal personal dealings with Vivek Ramaswamy. I think that he is a I think that he is a charlatan, a con artist, who no one should ever take his word seriously on anything because it might be something different tomorrow. I think that he is arguably the most profound egomaniac I've ever met in my entire life, and I've met a number. And I think that the only thing that Vivek Ramaswamy actually truly believes in is in the near messianic status of Vivek Ramaswamy himself. So I would caution people who are, uh, you know, you know, clicking on, on these videos of him because he clearly is well-spoken. Someone clearly kind of gave him the handbook of conservative right-wing talking points. But the guy is clearly unstable in his beliefs. He was a George Soros fellow a number of years ago. I mean, there, there are well-documented instances of him co-investing with Chinese Communist Party-backed Party investment groups as recently as 2019 or 2020. Now he calls himself kind of an anti-China hawk. He was praising George Soros on Twitter as recently as like a year and a half, two years ago, if I recall. So uh, I, the guy just has a million red flags. I mean, and now he's, you know, he's, he's had any number of flip-flops. I mean, he said Juneteenth was this, then he said it was that. He had this somewhat bizarre exchange on a Blaze TV podcast talking about 9-11. I mean, the guy is just uh, – he, he's remarkably inconsistent, and I, and, and I think that he is, is a total and complete fraud. Um, I think Vivek ideally would like to be U.S. Secretary of Treasury or something like that. Uh, I hope that he does not get that. Wow. So, Josh, we're coming up to the 2 o'clock hour, and we're going to have to do our station identification and some more commercials. So before we let you go, can you tell everyone how they can find your material? Because it's all over the place. And as you can see from today's conversation, well worth seeking out, reading, and watching. So go ahead and tell everyone where they can find more about Josh Hammer. Yeah, thank you guys so much for having me. So I'm on Twitter, Josh underscore Hammer. I'm a Fairly active tweeter, so that's one easy place to go. My podcast, The Josh Hammer Show, is on Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Write a weekly newsletter for Newsweek called The Josh Hammer Report, which you can also find on Newsweek's website. And then I write my weekly syndicated column, which goes out via creator syndicate to Newsweek and also any number of right-leaning outlets, such as uh, Town Hall, 
Epoch Times, American Greatness, Daily Caller, Daily Signal, places like that. So, yeah, thanks, guys. Really appreciate it. Oh, no, this was fun, and we hope you will come back. Oh, I think Angelina has something to say. So, Josh, you're all over the place doing so many different things. Are we going to have any books coming out of you anytime soon? <laughs> uh, yes, that is uh, – I don't have a, a formal contract signed, but it is – in its very early stages in the works is probably the most I can say. Oh, that's well, exciting. You definitely have to come back and talk about that when you do publish it. But we hope uh, between now and then we, we have you on uh, periodically because we'd like to get the Josh, Josh Hammer update as part of the Don't Back Down show. And now we're going to Station ID. Thank you so much, Josh. Thank you, guys. WWDB 860 AM Philadelphia and WPEN HD2 Burlington, Philadelphia. And welcome back to the Don't Back Down show, hosted today by Andy Teitelman. But we do have Stan Casaccio joining us by phone in studio today is Angelina Banks. And we want to say hello again to our newest sponsor, Roofing Dynamics Group. For our listeners who own or manage large commercial properties, have you ever had any roofing issues? Do you even know the true condition of your roof? Roofing is something that you don't think about until you have a problem. And by then, it's too late to avoid costly repairs or replacements. Did you know that nearly every large flat roof has a leak at some point? Whether from a severe storm or age, even a small leak can have devastating effects on your building and its occupants. With so much at stake, be proactive and call Roofing Dynamics Group, the trusted advisor you need to tell you the true condition of your roof. Utilizing modern technology such as infrared scans, moisture probes, and even drone scans, Roofing Dynamics can pinpoint immediate problems before they become huge problems with precise accuracy. They can evaluate just how long your commercial roof will last and provide recommendations and budgets that will save you money. Free preliminary survey of your commer- for, a, for a free preliminary survey of your commercial roof, call Roofing Dynamics at 215-491-9000 and ask for Audrey or visit them online at www.roofingdynamics.com. Again, that's 215-491-9000 or www.roofingdynamics.com. And right now, who uh, joining us in studio is Steve Feldman from the uh, Greater Philadelphia Zionist Organization of America to talk a little bit more about the upcoming gala. Welcome to the Don't Back Down show, Steve. Thanks, Andy. It's good to be uh, back with you. And uh, Stan, I hope you're listening and and on the mend. I'm here. Did you listen to any of Josh uh, Hammer's comments about source? I I did not get a chance to. I'm sorry, but I can... (laughs) Oh, you're just can, using us for commercial time. Can, you don't I actually can, listen to this show. Well, Is that what I'm you're busy saying? working, but I, I can imagine what, what knowing Josh, <laughs> I can so imagine what he said. Yeah, so it would. Uh, you should play our uh, play it back because it was pretty uh, powerful stuff that he talked about. I'm sure that Josh is not uh, the president of the Soros fan club. No, he in fact uh, he and uh, and uh, who was the other gentleman with him? They just started what could be called the oh. biggest anti-Soros club. And what's the name of that? You Seems, had uh, the, the organization's called Jews Against Soros, and the other gentleman's first name was Will. And I well, here. Jews against Soros, it might as well be Soros against Jews. It goes both that mirror image. It already is. It already is uh, Soros against Jews. But, but as I tell people, Andy, um, there's a lot of 
quote-unquote boogeyman out there, a lot of evil people with a lot of money. He's a name that everybody knows, uh, and it's time on these issues that people know some of the other names. There's, there's hundreds of people like him, and, and to focus on one uh, is to miss what's happening all around well, at least there's an awakening and where Soros is concerned, uh, he's had so much influence over American politics because of his infection of J Street or K Street over in Washington with the uh, lobbying and so forth. At least we're making some kind of headway. But that that's a great way to bring up uh, ZOA, which you are the executive director of the Philadelphia, the Greater Philadelphia Zionist Organization of America. Um, why don't you tell everybody what the purpose and mission of the ZOA is? Thanks. So ZOA is uh, celebrating its 125th anniversary this year, founded in 1897. The first half, if you will, of our organization's existence was to work towards the reestablishment of the Jewish state of Israel in our historic and legal homeland, our meaning the Jewish peoples. And, And since May of 1948, when Israel declared independence, We've been working to make sure that not only Israel is safe and secure and vibrant and strong, and that the U.S.-Israel relationship, which is mutually beneficial, is also vibrant and strong, but also the well-being of of the Jewish people uh, in America, around the world. Jews are under attack like uh, we haven't been in generations, and so we are one of the true few groups focusing on that and calling out Jew hatred and Jew haters from across the spectrum. There are a number of groups that uh, are billed as Jewish defense groups, they tend to focus on uh, one area, the right, uh, and are very myopic. And I just created a new presentation uh, that that demonstrates clearly there are nine different sources of Jew hatred from across the political, racial, ethnic, geographic, demographic spectrums. Uh, and so to focus on one, uh, just as I was talking about with George Soros, to, to focus on one uh, element of Jew hatred is, is to really leave the door open for all the others that, that nobody's watching. So we're watching everybody. We're fighting everybody. Uh, we're proactive. We try to be very proactive and positive. For example, we've had a Buy Israel program for about 15 years. Uh, we uh, encourage people to monitor the media to monitor uh, political officials, um, I mean, you name it. It runs the gamut uh, and, and keeps us busy. We've got a wonderful uh, core group of leadership and volunteers and many, many members locally and throughout the country. So why don't you tell us about the upcoming gala? When is it? And before I turn it back to you, I just want to say, say bragging a little bit uh, for the Don't Back Down Show family. Stan Casaccio and Diane Cardano Casaccio, his wife, are receiving the Friends of Zion Award at this gala. So when is the gala? So the gala is September 7th at the Hilton Philadelphia City Avenue in the evening. Yeah, say, we're looking at it right now so you can see it from across about the street that, there. Yeah. Yes. Wow. Uh, uh, Andy, you've been to some of our, our galas. Uh, you know what a wonderful event it is, uh, not only to honor wonderful people who do wonderful and important work, which I'll get to in a moment, but the, the sheer camaraderie, to be with hundreds of people who have similar values, um, care about similar issues. You know, a lot of us uh, are kind of isolated. You know, our friends, our family are not of our, our opinions on many issues. And, and it kind of can feel lonely, I think. That's what's been expressed to me. At our gala, you're with people who, who share your views for the most part. I mean, there, there are 
shades of differences, uh, but mostly people who share our views. It's warm, it's friendly, it's Jews and Christians celebrating America and Israel and Zionism and patriotism. And, you know, we begin with the Pledge of Allegiance and have the anthems of both countries and uh, and some inspiring speeches. This year, we're privileged to honor Bart Blatstein, who is a, a really renowned uh, developer, uh, Philadelphia suburbs, Atlantic City. Uh, he's going to be getting our Pillar of the Community Award. Justice Sandra Schultz-Newman, who uh, was the first female uh, to make it to the Pennsylvania Supreme Court, the highest court in the Commonwealth, uh, and is, a, is, is really a legendary attorney in her own right, is going to get our uh, Defender of Israel Award. Stan and Diane, who are just wonderful activists, uh, really leaders also in the real estate industry, are going to be getting our Friends of Zion Award, which we present to Christian Zionists who were always grateful. And we're going to be honoring Michael Goldfarb, who's a former Philadelphian. He's founder and chairman of the Washington Free Beacon, which is really a wonderful website that people should check out every day, Uh, really breaking, muckraking journalism. He's going to be getting our Ben Hecht Award for Outstanding Journalism, and he's going to be giving our our keynote address. So it's going to be a wonderful evening, uh, warmth, inspiration, spirituality, friendship, and good food and drink. All right. Well, that sounds terrific. So tell people how they can uh, get tickets or otherwise figure out how to attend the uh, the gala. Thank you. So uh, the gala is really two parts. There, there's an ad journal, which we're working on right now. Uh, if anybody wants to put in a message congratulating and thanking Stan and Diane, for example, or our other honorees, uh, you can uh, do that by sending an email to office at zoaphilly.org. That's office at zoaphilly.org. You've got till noon tomorrow to get something in. We'll be happy to help you design something, make it look nice, make it sound good. Uh, The gala itself, uh, to get tickets, tickets are $220 a piece. Uh, if you want to buy a table and bring your friends, it's twenty five hundred dollars. Uh, also, they could reach out to us at office at zoaphilly.org, office at zoaphilly.org, and uh, we'll be happy to help you uh, tell you more about the event if you want to know more about the event and and get you uh, tickets. All right, is there a website people can go to to see more about what the Philly Greater Philadelphia ZOA uh, does and also get more information about the gala? Sure. So if you go to uh, www.philly.zoa.org, that's philly.zoa.org is our local website. We have a national organization that also has wonderful content on its website, and that is zoa.org, zoa.org. And again, our number, uh, actually, I didn't give out our number. I'm going to give it out now. It's 610-660-9466, 610-660-9466. I know many of Stan's friends and Diane's friends have signed up and are participating in our book, and we're very grateful. I look forward to seeing those of you who I already know and meeting meeting some new uh, friends of Stan and Diane who are going to be coming, and uh, we're really looking forward to it. Well, thank you very much, Steve. I just wanted to mention that Steve and I have been talking about doing a joint, and, and we may have something to announce that night, about doing a joint Christian-Jewish uh, 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 get-together to fight 
both the anti-Christian Christian, uh, uh, Christian movement that's been killing Christians all over the world, as well as the uh, uh, as well as the anti-Zionist uh, uh, people that are out there. So we're hoping to create this organization that will do that. And uh, Stephen and I have been talking about it, which I think will be pretty exciting. Yeah, thank you for bringing that up, Stan. I, my, I, I remiss in not bringing it up. Uh, I really want to call attention to what's happening to Christians worldwide, uh, the persecution, the murders, the, the burning down of churches, uh, and, and really putting a, a freezing effect on the ability of Christians in some places to, to worship freely. Uh, the Jew hatred is is out of sight both in this country, uh, throughout Europe, throughout the world, and and it's time to come together to really unite and call attention to both. I don't know if we could put together an organization, but I certainly would like to put together a series of events, a a rally, uh, and maybe some forums to really give people some action items to do. That that's really mine and ZOA's uh, bailiwick is action items to to really try and. Uh, through our activities, through real effort, meaningful effort, uh, certainly curtail some of this uh, and, and maybe hopefully, God willing, put a stop to it entirely. Yeah, that would be, be the ultimate goal to do something like that. Yeah, looking forward to it. Well, everyone, again, the, uh, the Greater Philadelphia ZOA Gala will be on September 7th at the Philadelphia Hilton City Line Avenue. Our own Stan Casaccio and Diane Cardano Casaccio are getting the Friends of Zion Award, amongst many other notables who will be receiving awards. And I can attest to the fact that it's always a, a wonderful evening of, of camaraderie, good food, and uh, just great people and, and an opportunity to mix and mingle and do something that benefits the community in a very big way. So, Steve Fellman, thank you for joining us on the Don't Back Down show, and hopefully we'll have you back next week for further updates because until September 7th comes and goes, we will want people to go, and we're inviting everyone from the Don't Back Down audience to be there to watch Stan get his award. Thanks. Thank you very much for the opportunity, Andy and Stan. So, Mr. Producer, will you give us number 12? So um, I want to start with the days before January 6th, 2021. Um, it was commonly known there was going to be a demonstration or believed there was going to be a demonstration in front of the Capitol that day. You were the chief of Capitol Police. You're in charge of security at the Capitol. Um, so it would seem logical that you would have the most intelligence, the most up-to-date, most accurate intelligence about what was likely to happen that day because you're consulting with all kinds of other agencies, intel agencies, law enforcement agencies, lots of federal agencies. But it doesn't sound like you did have the most information about what was going to happen. You're absolutely correct. I mean, what we've learned that it was out there at the time versus what we had coming into it, night and day. And when you talk about the intelligence agency, I have my own intelligence agency up at um, Capitol Police, IICD, Interagency Intelligence Coordination Division. Yes. uh, That coordinates with the other intelligence agencies. 
Um, and now, you know, we're seeing the intelligence I was getting coming into it was indicating this was going to be just like the previous MAGA rallies, the November and December rallies that we had. Where we had limited skirmishes. We had some skirmishes afterwards uh, down by uh, BLM Plaza with some of the uh, Antifa groups uh, and some of the BLM groups. But coming into it, absolutely zero with the intelligence that we know now existed, talking about attacking the Capitol, killing my police officers, attacking members of Congress and killing members of Congress. None of that was included in the intelligence coming up to That you received. Correct. But others received that intelligence. Well, we now know FBI, DHS was swimming in that intelligence. We also know now that the military seemed to have some very concerning intelligence as well. So that was David Sund, the chief of the Capitol Police, appearing recently on Tucker Carlson's uh, uh, newest way of projecting himself, which is through the Internet, uh, Twitter or X or whatever they call themselves now. And uh, and and he's getting more views uh, per episode there than he would get in an entire week. And I want to go back to that roundtable thing that we did last time we had Angelina and Chris Scott. And Chris Scott, because you've been dominating the show so far, why don't we go to you first to uh, give your take on the fact that the uh, chief of the Capitol Police has come out and blasted uh, what has happened, further showing the insanity of and the fact that that that. President Trump should certainly not be charged, but how poorly and intentionally poorly the uh, J6 episode was handled in, in the Capitol. Well, I think it's clear to me something that I've been saying for a while, and I personally believe that they will do whatever it takes to prevent Trump from being president. I really believe that we are at a, a historic crossroads. I mean, we, we frequently are. So I don't know if that's such a rare occurrence in itself, but uh, this is really historic. If, if the uh, establishment community, the intelligence community, uh, the establishment party members who have combined forces against Trump, if they're successful in keeping him from being president against the will of the people, uh, it's a real game changer for the for the future of this country. You know, some people think it'll lead to violence. Um, I don't know about that. I sure hope not on a variety of fronts, and I hope it can be resolved without any of that. But I guess you have to ask yourself, if, if we no longer have open, fair, free elections, where do we go from here? Not much of a country left at that point. At that point. So, you know, to me, this information uh, coming out with the, the chief of police is just uh, more information on, on piles of everything else that we've been fed half-truths that are nothing but complete lies. Uh, there's so many people that have had a hand in this, um, even Kevin McCarthy with not releasing the tapes. And I think now we're learning that they've, they've disappeared. I just want to make sure it's, it's just too much for the average person to handle. We're just not capable of processing that kind of thing, I guess. And so the powers that be are going to handle it. But I, I don't think people are at all in agreement with what they see going on. I don't see any support of it. I don't see it in the in the black communities, the brown communities. I don't see Jewish support for, for Biden and the scam that's going on. Of course, there's pockets everywhere. But I think the popular vote right now is strongly behind Trump. I want to just make two last points on this, Andy. Sure. Um, I, think, I think Trump is the ideal candidate. Uh, I've been, you know, uh, really kind of dismissing for the most part uh, some of the other candidates. And I'll tell you why. It's not because some of them aren't uh, taking some great positions and some great philosophical thoughts. And I hope Trump is listening to all that. But, uh, and my wife disagrees with me on this, to be fair, I hope I'm wrong. Uh, I believe we're at a point 
where we're either going to acquiesce or fight. There's no other option. The liberal left has a lot of money. They're power hungry, hungry for blood, and they're not going to stop. And unless we, you know, RFK Jr., for example, a great guy, a lot of great messaging, uh, but he, he wants to make peace. And I applaud that. I hope it's successful, but I don't see it working. I think we need a fighter, and Trump is the person to do that. The last thing I want to mention, you know, we, we say this frequently that, you know, what they're doing to Trump, that, uh, you know, what are you going to do when it's you? And, you know, people don't think in those terms, right? They just never, nah, it's never going to happen to me. I don't do anything wrong. What do I have to hide? Okay. And uh, I was looking uh, into the background of Josh a little bit before he came. I didn't have a chance to talk to him, which is okay. Uh, but the Southern Poverty Law Center has him as a marked man. And I'll tell you what the next step I see in that process. If Josh ever goes to try and run for office or whatever line that they have that he steps over, uh, they're laying the basis now for all kinds of cases and damages against this guy. And you can disagree with him ideologically. You could completely disagree with him. Everybody's free to do that. But what has he done to have his reputation smeared, uh, his future jeopardized, because he has a different opinion? And I think that many people are beginning to wake up and realize now, especially parents, uh, that they really don't have a choice anymore, and that's not so comforting. And they realize now that if they speak up about it, it's not just Trump, that it will be them, especially if they try to get involved. So I hope people like the chief of police keep speaking up. I hope Tucker keeps doing his thing. And I'm happy to hang out with you guys for a little bit today, Andy. And I'm glad to hear that uh, Stan is still up and kicking. And uh, Angeline, it's great to hear your voice as well. Stan's in better shape than ever. I actually picked up the part at Home Depot, excuse me, Lowe's, that was used uh, to fix the plumbing, and I got him the best of the best. So Stan's in great shape. So that great commentary, Chris, and, and we really appreciate it. So, Stan, what's your, your take on what uh, Chief uh, Sund had to say? Well, you know, Andy, you and I were there, and I was interviewing a lot of people, and the, the, it was kind of like a party going on. Uh, people with family and everything else, they were just frustrated that how can a guy by the name of Joe Biden, who's living in million-dollar houses on a politician's payroll, get 81 million votes? It was just unbelievable that could happen, especially since we knew there was a you know the mail-in ballots, the drop boxes, all the hypocrisy that went on. I believe it was a total setup from the beginning. That's what I believe. Not only was J6 a total setup, but so was the uh, 2020 election, because finally, something that we all were aware of, Stan um, and Chris and Angelina, um, the the you can re- you remember when they emptied out the Georgia counting center in Fulton County, Georgia, and they claimed there was a flood um, and they cleared it out. But there were several people that remained in the count room and they pulled out those suitcases mm-hmm. And they started running ballots through machines. Not only did they run them once, but they ran the same ballots multiple times. Well, guess what? A new report released in June by the FBI concluded that the female and male Georgia poll workers who jammed stacks of ballots through the voting machines numerous times on election night 2020 after observers were sent home did nothing wrong. According to the report Andy, that was re- uh, hang on, according to the report that was recently released, the bulk of the investigation appears to have been conducted in December 2020 and January 2021. But both the state election board and Georgia Secretary of State's office was backed up reviewing claims. So 
We have it on video. We saw it happen. And somehow the media has convinced those who are on the left that nothing to see here. This is all perfectly normal. Everything's fine. And, and I, I still scratch my head. It's, it's like watching someone shoot somebody and being told it was actually a water pistol and no one died, even though you saw the person fall to the street bleeding. So it doesn't make any sense to me, but, but it is coming out. And that's the good news. Actually, Andy, there's a legal case going on right now on this very issue. And that's the uh, uh, who was the guy? Just forgot his name. That shot on the set of Rust. Shot the oh, Alec Baldwin. Yes, Alec Baldwin. Yes. yes, they're arguing about whether. So, get this: the guy's holding the gun, aiming the gun at the woman. The projectile leaves the gun, kills the woman. Now try proving that he pulled the trigger. And that's where the case is at. It, it's and unbelievable. It's, it's unbelievable. Yet. Uh, the jury verdict in the Andy No case uh, uh, against Antifa, they and that was on video too, and they found them not guilty. I, it's it something is very very broken in our just is system, and I'm not sure what we can do to fix it, but pray every day and hope that that the right results come out or that the bad results that we're seeing in real time somehow lead us to better results in the long run because things are so out of sorts and out of sync that it's 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 hard to describe i've I've mentioned it before on this show i've talked about that show on tv called the carbonara effect it's a show about a magician who performs magic tricks and then people he basically explains to people what they saw when it's completely opposite of what they saw and people accept it. And that's kind of where we are on a large scale. It's just things every day that we see the the world, the people, the basic public doesn't want to do the brain work to really process and accept the changes and kind of the atrocities they're seeing. So they're just willing to accept anything so that they don't have to be faced with the reality of, of where we are in society. That is very frightening as well. And I had wanted to get into the uh, election fraud situation with Josh, and there was just so much to talk to him about. He gave us 45 minutes of his time, which was very I, – I can't wait till we can get him back on. He was excellent. So we are joined right now by Pauline Braccio, the fourth commissioner of Montgomery County. Hello, Pauline. Hi. And, um, Stan, I'm so glad to hear your voice, and I'm glad you're doing so well. Uh, but please don't leave the hospital until they check out the pain in the back, in your back and the, your knee. Okay. You, you already left the you hospital. You don't go home and. I already, oh, I no. already left. The, I was done being poked in my uh, every place. Okay. So. <laughs> All right. Well, I just hope that you just get, get well very quickly. Um, I really would have liked to have spoken to Josh Hammer to get his opinion about this. Bill Lawrence, whom I'm sure you're all familiar with. He uh, put his blog out yesterday, and one of them was uh, caught my interest was about the fact that school libraries, by law, are allowed to have obscene materials in their libraries. It's it's crazy. Well, we did touch we did touch on that with him. Right, that's why I wanted, but I didn't know if he knew that it is actually legal. Title 18, Crimes and Offenses, it's subsection 5903 and then section J. And it literally states, first above J from A through I is all about how you can't do this and you can't do that and minors and, you know, these are the the consequences. And then J says exemptions. Nothing in this section shall apply to any recognized historical society or museum accorded charitable status by the federal government, any county, city, borough, 
township or town library, any public library, any library of any school. That includes elementary schools. So I had a meeting two weeks ago with the head librarian and her assistant of the North Penn School District. That's the district, district in which I live. And they were very resistant to anything I suggested, and they assured me that the children are being protected. They acknowledge that they have these books in their libraries, but that the children are being protected. And they say, oh, we know who's taking out what books. And I'm thinking to myself, anybody can go in there and take out a book and show it to any other student. So, and, so Pauline, um, you, you forgot to mention subsection R, where they redefine what minors are, and it's been redefined as people who dig for coal. So they're really, since coal is now illegal, <laughs> there really are no longer any minors. That's about right. But, but they, you know, my whole thing is the only way to protect minors, children, is to not have the books in the schools at all. That's the only way to honestly protect them because outside of schools, it's up to the parents. And it's very disheartening to know that legally they're allowed to have this stuff. And it's also disheartening because I attend every meeting of the school district as well, besides the commissioner uh, board of commissioners and parents are just not showing up. You're, you're and right. I don't know if it's, you're a hundred percent right. It, I mean, it, I've been going to the school board meetings for and watching them on zoom for, I don't know how long. And it's amazing how many parents are, are not paying attention, not tuning in, not being engaged with what's happening in the school front. And I think when this fight really heats up, parents are going to be really surprised, especially across Pennsylvania, how much power school boards actually have and how much um, power over parents and, and to come disrupt the household that these school districts actually have. If you sit and you read through these board policies, the legal rights and the ability to um, take children out of the home or contact CPS or do do any kind of things that will really kind of affect um, – what's the word I'm looking for? Affect um, guardianship over children. It's, it's really kind of um, – was surprising to me when I really looked into how much power school boards have. No doubt it's, about and it. And it's scary. It's scary, Angela. And, and the thing is some parents – I've questioned parents. Why aren't you coming? Why aren't you speaking out? And they are against it, as I am, but they won't speak out because they're afraid to. I've actually had parents say to me, I don't want to have any backlash on my child in school. If I come and speak out against what the school is doing, then my child might have an adverse um, effect on them. Well, by not do, by not, not doing saying. anything, they're definitely getting an adverse effect through the brainwashing and the grooming that's taking place. So you have your choice. Take a risk that your exactly. kid may get downgraded, but at least you'll be saving their lives or let them be turned into something that, that you won't recognize because it's going to happen before you even know what happened because they don't even have to tell you about it. Exactly. I'll tell you two, two, two things I'd like to mention here, guys. A great story, by the way. Uh, great information. I saw some videos on these books uh, there in the North Penn uh, libraries, and people really do need to pay attention to it. Um, but uh, when the, our schools down here um, shut down for COVID, I was very upset, and I had uh, uh, prepared a few points to share with the board, and I discussed it with my wife, and she was very uh, avid that I not do it for the reasons that you mentioned. My mother-in-law even called me all the way from New York City. Um, and I respected their wishes, and I remained silent. I have to tell you, 
Um, there's, I believe it's one of the Moms for Liberty. There's a very passionate story about what happened to her daughter. Uh, I believe in high school, and they had to move her to a different school, and uh, it really can be traumatic. And how evil is it um, that people are willing to put the kids in the middle of this? It's a very much a shame to me that the books are there and, and is one thing, and then that they, they're fighting to ram it down the kids' throats. And God forbid you, you speak up about it. They'll, they'll be happy to slaughter your kids in, right in front of you as well. It's very disturbing. I'm glad you uh, you at least keep up the fight. All right. So we have to yeah, take Yeah, I'm a, not going to stop. All right, Pauline, we have to take a brief break for uh, the Diane Cardano ad. So, Mr. Producer, run that for us, please. No, no, the rise in mortgage rates have not affected home buying activity. It's a great time to sell your home. Even with higher mortgage rates, buyer traffic is actually picking up speed. Diane Cardano here from the Cardano team reporting home showing traffic is up and has been over the last 12 months. All this is happening as mortgage rates increase. Buyers are coming out of the woodwork looking for a home. In Philly, the Burbs, or even in New Jersey, home sale prices are soaring right now. I just sold a home for $70,000 over the listed price. This is due to low inventory, rates leveling out, and buyers are disgusted with the rise in rents all over town. They want the dream of home ownership, a place to call their own. Call me, Diane Cardano, to get a soul sign on your lawn in one day. And don't worry, I will hire a professional photographer to take beautiful, eye-catching photos of your home. And I will not use my cell phone. And I'll put thousands of dollars in your pocket overnight. Let's connect. Call 215-576-8666 or go to DianeCardano.com. You don't have to make a PR event out of it. You shouldn't mm-hmm. make a PR event out of it, but just some sort of nurturing of the relationship so she knows she's valued, despite the fact that she was born out of wedlock and her father's obviously a hot mess of a man. And the mother's got, you know, I don't know what the mother's past is. Former stripper doesn't tell us all that much. But I will mm-hmm. say this. This is, you know, I as I said at the top, I don't know. If I were the grandmother and my child had chosen not to have an active role in such a child's life, I would not approve of it, but I would not overrule yeah. the child. Like, I would not go around my own child's decision to have a direct relationship. But you think about what Maureen wrote, which, which really gets at the special situation here of being Joe Biden and Hunter Biden. And she says this, um, this little girl has Biden blood running through her veins, and all she's going to have as a reminder of this, are some of Hunter's original paintings. Sounds like a lousy trade-off, if you ask me. As she grows up, knowing that her father and paternal grandparents wanted nothing to do with her, there will be plenty of schoolmates to remind her that she Mm. wasn't wanted. Kids can be mean that way. And she says, Mr. Mm. President, many years ago, you lost your daughter in a horrendous car accident. Please do not throw away your granddaughter. This is from the draft letter that Maureen's... um, conservative sister wrote to Joe Biden that, you know, persuaded Maureen as well. That he's, they're, they're doing the wrong thing. Today, there was some, some wavering on it. There was a report about Hunter Biden now potentially going, he's going to see her. I don't know what the, but at this point, it's almost pointless because anything they do from this point forward will be just to, to politically assuage Maureen Dowd and her sister and the like, right? It's not, none of us <laughs> is going to Politics is such a warping thing, isn't it? I mean, imagine that your life is completely governed by political instincts, every single decision. I mean, this happens to families that are political families. When Ted Kennedy drove off a bridge in Chappaquiddick in Martha's Vineyard and Mary Jo Capetchny was desperately taking her last breaths, when he got to safety, he was thinking about his political career. 
and he didn't call the police because mm -hmm. politics dominated everything. When politics takes over your life like that, it makes you an immoral creature because politics is not a place for people who have normal morality. And when you have somebody in your family, if it's a, if it's a son, if it's a, I mean, look, I, 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 you know, kind of grimace at even saying this is that, you know, his invocation of his son in his son who died in political context, repeated political context, I find very unseemly too. He does when it politics, a lot. Again, when it, when it takes, it takes over every part of your life, it you know, really intrudes upon normal human reactions to things. And when the political consideration is first, you're doing something wrong and you have to step away from it. So you're listening to the Don't Back Down show today with Andy Teitelman, uh, Stan Casaccio, remote, Angelina Banks in the studio, and our good friend Chris Scott, who has his own podcast. And what you just heard was a Megyn Kelly piece uh, on the lovely nature of the Biden grandfathercy of this uh, of, of Hunter's daughter. And that's a poignant piece to us here at Don't Back Down because Stan Casaccio uh, has spent a good part of his summer with his own grandchildren. And if you want to see a model grandfather, grandparent, stands that. So, Angelina, what do you what do you make of this? So I think first off, just the fact that Biden's finally acknowledging this grand this granddaughter and the fact that it's national news is really sad. <laughs> um, it, it shouldn't have ever been a question. I, I understand keeping family and politics separate, but because Biden makes so much about his persona, he's a father, he's a grandfather, and how much they spend all the time together, this just blatant ignoring of this child for the last five years was really a travesty. And I, I really have a lot of compassion to this child's mother and to herself. She's five years old. And the saga of not being um, acknowledged and appreciated by her paternal family is just really, really sad to me. I'm a mother of two small girls and a stepmother of two adult stepchildren. And, and you know, families have their ups and downs, but I would never deny them privately or publicly. Well, that's a good one. So, Stan, how about you? You, you, you are grandfather of the year, at least according to Don't Back the Don't That Back Down show. What do you make of it? Well, first off, uh, I think if you ask my grandkids, they probably would say I'm the best because uh, they had an unlimited budget on the boardwalk, <laughs> and that meant, <clears throat> that meant a lot of rides. But uh, talk about inflation fifty uh, forty dollars for a pizza! Oh my God, it's unbelievable. Uh, yeah, it was a crazy time. But one of the things I wanted to ask, uh, uh, Andy, since you're the guy that's um, had a few lawsuits that uh, you've started, I'm waiting for some smart uh, conservative lawyer, D.A., somewhere to indict, uh, indict uh, Stacey Abrams for failing to accept the uh, governor's election, which he continued to fight it for a couple of years. And, of course, uh, uh, Hillary Clinton. And then there's always Al Gore with the hanging chads. Uh, there's so many cases, and I think we have to start fighting fire with fire. If they have people like like this woman who can just do this out of nowhere, let's use the same formula that they have and start suing uh, their people because that's the only way it's going to stop. Trouble is we can't seem to find those prosecutors who can even the playing field a little bit and – um, it, it, listen, the only way to have real justice is that everybody knows if they do something wrong, they can be exposed to sanctions, whether it's civil sanctions or criminal sanctions, depending on the conduct at issue. Um, you have to know that you're at risk. But for for reasons that I fully don't understand, I see it happening. I know what's happening. I can 
come to certain suppositions about why it's happening. But I don't understand why why there is no pushback on it uh, overtly by the so-called right. Uh, clearly, there's a two-tiered system of, system of justice that or just is that has developed in the United States. And it, this isn't just happening in the last couple of years. It's just become so apparent they're not even trying to hide it anymore that you can't even pretend that we have a fair and balanced justice system and we we should be disgraced that by the fact that there aren't more uh, people in office whether judges or prosecutors or other public attorneys who are taking a stand to invoke the constitution both the st- the state con- the federal constitution and the state constitution people often forget that each one of the 50 states has its own constitution in some cases that are more protective of the citizenry than than the federal constitution and we also forget that the federal government is not supposed to be the most powerful government in our lives your state government and your local governments are the ones that we should be turning to for first level relief and yet that somehow the feds have taken over almost all roles it's a paternalistic top down very communist like form of totalitarianism that's enveloped the entire country and uh, thank you for getting me going on that, Stan. And by the way, um, my my nickname because of the lawsuits I filed is they call me the sewer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, one other thing is I, the, the the indictment in Georgia. I, I mean, they got Rudy Giuliani. They've got eighteen lawyers. Um, they're indicting too. So um, I, I think it might have been Dershowitz who said, "Now it's okay to sue a lawyer." Uh, to indict a lawyer for representing his client. I I thought there was a, I thought you were allowed, I mean, a a criminal lawyer, you know, defends his criminal client to the best of his ability. What they're saying is that that person should go to jail too. At least that's what they're saying. They're trying to throw a chill on the kind of advocacy. The, the, you're supposed to be singularly concerned for the benefit of your client, not yourself, when you're representing somebody. And they're trying to, uh, to interfere with the attorney-client relationship. And I'll tell you when it started from my, in my, uh, you know, from my recollection is when they came up with this thing called the crime-fraud exception to the attorney-client uh, relationship. Now, on the surface, the crime fraud exception, this is a federal thing, sounds completely coherent. It's like, well, if the lawyer and the client are engaging in criminal conduct together, shouldn't the lawyer be exposed? And the answer to that superficially is yes. But who gets to decide whether they're engaging in criminal activity? Oh, well, that neutral and unbiased prosecutor. And then who gets to decide whether the prosecutor is right? Well, of course, the fair and balanced judge. So when the prosecutor makes a motion to compel uh, to to invade the attorney client uh, privilege and the attorney client relationship, they file a motion with the court. The court then will invoke the crime fraud exception. And the next thing you know, you have attorneys testifying against their own clients. And there is no one who knows more about the client than the attorney. And the privilege is useless. It either has to be complete and you take certain hits because sometimes lawyers and their clients will commit crimes. Some things can't be prosecuted uh, or we lose the right to have uh, effective assistance of counsel because the lawyer is always going to be afraid for their own skin and they won't be able to properly defend their client. Because what if the prosecutor decides to invoke the crime fraud exception? Then it, it, it all goes, uh, it goes to hell in a handbasket. So, Stan, you hit on something that is a raw nerve for me. 
Yeah, I, I am. I was blown away because uh, you know I, I I've met Rudy Giuliani a, a few times, and he was so instrumental by using the RICO to uh, end the uh, crime families in New York, which were really brutal families in New York. I mean, uh, in, especially in the construction field. I mean, basically, people have to understand something. Donald Trump was able to build stuff in New York. He had to deal with crooked Democrat politicians in New York. He had to deal with uh, unions that would throw people off buildings if they didn't comply with them. This was a rough group, and of course, the trash people. So he had to go after these people. He was actually listed for a targeted killing by the mob at one point. So here's a guy who put his life on the line for American justice, who then became mayor, became the country's uh, mayor. Uh, because of the way he handled New York. I mean, New York became a city which you could walk down. People felt secure under his mayorship. He, I mean, he did uh, stop and frisk. Which they made a whole big deal about it and saying it was a, you know, a racial component. But yet, let's face it, those cops knew. They know who the bad guys are. They knew who to go after. And uh, they just kept the pressure on these people to make sure that they, you know, walk the narrow. Now, maybe in some cases they overplayed it, which cops can sometimes do. I get it. But there's no way that the city of New York, the city of San Francisco, L.A., all these Democratic-run cities are any better off. They're so much worse because of these uh, DAs who don't do anything about it. And here's really Rudy Giuliani putting his life on the line for the country. And this little... Uh, D.A., George Soros D.A., who has no love for this country, he no love for the justice system, which to me is the perfect example of who we should not have in our country. How these people get elected is, you know, beyond me. How common sense people can't see what's going around, going around their, uh, their whole uh, communities is unbelievable to me that this should be happening today. Uh, so uh, very upset with what's uh, with the, all the attorneys who were there. And there is evidence. Maybe, Andy, what happens is that evidence can be portrayed. Yet, yet there was a basis that quest to question the 2020 election, because there's oh, yeah. never been a there's never been a case. And you tell me if I'm wrong. All the cases were thrown out because of a procedural basis. If I'm not mistaken, there has not been one case that allowed for evidence to be brought. So there there has been one, but it wasn't from 2020. And it's what happened in um, in Arizona with the Carrie Lake case. And that was still given short shrift. I mean, they had a couple of days to present what they could. Kurt Olson did a masterful job on behalf of Carrie Lake. And that's the Lindell team. He's the lead lawyer for the Lindell group. And by the way, everyone, tune into uh, Lindell TV. Watch what's going on out in Springfield, especially tomorrow when he announces uh, what they claim will be the way we save the, the 2024 elections. I'm looking forward to hearing that. I was supposed to be out there and, and things didn't work out for me to be able to go. But now I want to bring on Lisa V from Right for Bucks. 
And she also happens to be from the Trump store at 2060 Street Road in Ben Salem, PA, and TrumpStorePA.com, where the full line of uh, MAGA and pro-Trump gear is. And, of course, they have the Biden line, too. And I'm still waiting to hear where they've actually come out with the Biden no more in 24. I don't even need attribution for that. I just want to see it on a T-shirt or a hat. So welcome to the Don't Back Down show, Lisa. Hi, Andy. Hi, Stan. I'm glad you're on the mend. Good to hear your yep, voice. On the, on the on the mend, yes. Uh, I feel good that I woke up on the right side of the green stuff this morning. Yay! So, so we do <laughs> yeah. we do have a we do have a never Biden uh, flag. We have a few of those here in the store, um, as well as all your great Trump gear. But the reason why I am calling is I know on uh, previous programs you guys have uh, talked about Mark Halk and the fact that he is running uh, for Congress next year in PA01, which is uh, covers uh, all of Bucks County, which is where I'm at, and a sliver of Montgomery County. And uh, I know that Right for Bucks is going to be hosting a Zoom call uh, tomorrow, this coming Thursday, on uh, was that August 17th at 8 p.m. Um, if you wanted a chance to uh, meet Mark Halk and, uh, and listen to what he has to say, and especially if you're interested in volunteering to help him uh, in any way with his campaign, uh, we'd love to have you on the call. For information for the call, all you have to do is go to the Right for Bucks website, which is uh, the words rightforbucks.com, all spelled out, and you go to the calendar of events uh, link. Go to that page on the Right for Bucks website. Thank you for that, Lisa. I, we, I had that on my list to cover, and I had not reached it yet, and I'm so glad because you have such a nice voice, much nicer than mine, actually, on the radio. So thank you for calling in with that. Do you have anything else you want to say to us? Oh, well, that was the big thing. I was just, uh, I was, as always, I have the I have the show playing here at the store. So I, I love being able to uh, listen to you guys every week. Um, and so do the customers. Well, that's terrific. Thank yeah. you so much. Thanks for joining us. And Mr. Producer, let's go to number nine for our next roundtable discussion piece. So you think it's fine to say to religious people that they are prohibited from gathering outside, wearing a mask, socially distanced. They can't do it. But if you want to come and protest, defund the police, if you want to support that, that's fine. You can gather in mass, person to person, close up, thousands of people. That's okay. I did not write these orders, um, what I said. You defended it in court. And My... you just articulated to me what I take to be your position. Why were the restrictions that you defended struck down as discriminatory? Why were they? You know the facts. You were a good lawyer. Why'd you lose? Senator. Oh, come on, Judge. Don't make me do this. You lost because Mayor Bowser was going to mass protests herself personally with thousands of people. At the same time she was doing that, she was prohibiting churches, religious people, from gathering socially distanced outside wearing masks. So that was Senator Josh Hawley uh, on the Senate Judiciary Committee. And uh, Chris Scott, let's start with you on this one. Well, uh, it's clear that we've watched the vanishing of many civil liberties uh, across the whole spectrum. We were just talking uh, before we moved to this piece about the RICO complaint filed about Trump and his lawyers. You were talking about the consequences of that, of lawyers, you know, probably not taking certain cases. Uh, I just saw a post on uh, Twitter today, uh, Carrie Lake, saying that they had, you know, attorneys with tears in their eyes saying, I can't take the case, you know, because it'll end my career. 
Um, and I was thinking, you know, you can file civil RICO complaints, right? Andy, am I correct on that? Yes, you, you can. They're, they're hard to maintain. I don't want to make anyone think they're easy. But, yes, if you have the evidence that can back it up, you absolutely can have a civil RICO complaint. Well, they're never easy cases, right, even when the government brings them. And that's how Giuliani got such a great reputation because uh, it takes a lot to put that all together uh, in a way that, that meets the basic standards of, of evidence, right, in a, in a criminal case. Um, but it can be done civilly. But the problem there is when you look at what's happened in Trump cases where he's filed as the plaintiff, um, they get thrown out and uh, with <laughs> damages assessed to pay the opposing party's legal fees. You can't, can't even get a fair case. And um, it's another one of those issues where I say, look, uh, you know, the, the way they're treating people, what you see going on on a bigger scale, it's just a matter of time uh, before it comes down to our level. I, I have a little matter I'm dealing with locally, and somebody just uh, said the same thing to me. We're talking about with the school board. Oh, you better be careful with that. And I've never entertained those two words, words in my life. That's what, how I smack my head doing pull-ups. You know what I mean? Be careful is not something I do a lot. <laughs> um, so I'm certainly not going to do it in my, my uh, legal arguments <laughs> either, right? But uh, I don't think – I think, as I mentioned earlier, they're going to do whatever it takes to stop Trump. They don't care. When, when Pelosi comes out and makes a statement, he can never be president. That means they're going to do whatever it takes. Constitution be damned, if that's what it means. And the legal structure has shifted in this country, as you mentioned. Uh, the definitions have changed. I could go on for hours about how changing the definition of family has wreaked havoc in our communities. Mm -hmm. You think, what? Well, how could that be? Because now suddenly you can have a group home of recovering drug addicts or sex offenders living in a single family home right next to you. And there's nothing you can do about it legally. Um, but, you know, to, to, the, to the point about the, the RICO complaint and the charges, um, it's a real shift. And I think that uh, people should be concerned that it's going to come from, from them next. And by the way, Andy, um, I like the sewer label for you. I think you should uh, have another slogan. Uh, the, the first flush is free. Oh, oh God, Chris. <laughs> so, so, I like that. I think it's I like it up in the legal world. I could see yeah. it on the Wall oh. Street Journal. Yeah, instead of a consultation, yeah. you get a first flush. I, I, I think I'm going to have to incorporate that into my marketing. Oh, I don't have any marketing. I mean, honestly, how much, how much of a difference is there, Andy, really, when you get down to it? <laughs> hey, you know what? I've heard every lawyer joke there is, and I realize that most of them are not jokes. Uh, and, but but, turn, but, turn, but turning, back, turning back to uh, what you were talking about, the justice system, do you listen to this one? The judge overseeing President Trump's – now, I'm reading a, a headline, but I happen to agree with every word of it. Trump's bogus Georgia case, Scott McAfee, once worked under Soros-funded Fulton County District Attorney Fannie Willis. Oh, isn't that the one prosecuting him? I think that yeah, judge just, ought well, to be recouped. That's why I say to you, there's a bona fide RICO complaint that Trump has against these prosecutors. He, he's got more than a RICO complaint. He has nowhere to bring it. I mean, there, it, 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 he's either being sued in D.C. or by Democrats in Georgia where he doesn't stand a snowball's chance. And and you want to know something? I think this turns out well for Trump. I think they're giving him the best free advertising that any politician could ask for. And they're turning him into a modern-day martyr. And he's going to rise from what they are attempting to cause, create ashes from. I have no doubt that Trump comes out of this 
not only whole, but stronger. Now, I think we are down to the last two minutes, Stan, so you need to talk to the audience and tell them how great you're doing and what we have coming up for next week. Well, the only thing I'd, I'd like to just add real, real quick is that it, is there's a comment that there's a, a, a comment on the judges that we have in power that the Congress, uh, especially the uh, common sense conservatives and you want to call them Republicans, they have not done their job of approving these federal judges. Uh, there's too much wheeling and dealing, and we're getting stuck with these uh, basically uh, haters of of, uh, of America. As far as uh, next week, we've got a great show next week. You definitely want to tune in. I should be in studio next week. Um, and uh, I'm uh, feeling better, uh, no doubt about it. I had a little uh, close call here, but uh, uh, no damage was done, and uh, the doc was uh, was great. He just, uh, you know, was, he took the information and did what he had to do with it. He He said, you know what, let's check this out, and I'm so thankful that he did that. Um, anyhow, so go ahead, Stan. I, I, I much prefer being able to look at you live in the studio, but it is great having you back on the show today. And, uh, I just want to thank all of our guests, Josh Hammer, Angelina, oh my God, good. <laughs> <laughs> what's, what's the name of the movie star? Angelina Jolie. Yes. Well, I'll take it. Well, you're better looking than she is, <laughs> but uh, Angelina Banks, Christopher uh, oh, Scott. Uh, absolutely. Uh, Absolutely better looking than her. Okay. Yeah, and Chris, Christopher Scott, and uh, what what a great show today! It was so much fun, and and we do have to get uh, uh, you know get Josh Hammer back with us again. He's got so much to talk about. I didn't even hit ten percent of what I wanted to ask, and with with Chris Scott like dominating the conversation, it was hard to get a word in edgewise there. Just let me tell you this: this Trump Trump is the Trump is the underdog, but just remember, the overdog never wins. Okay. And we're going to go out, yeah. Mr. Producer, with my dog is a Democrat. <laughs> uh, well, okay, he's. Well, oh, okay, on, I just, just played a last say... one. Then that's okay. We we. we... You would have told Wait, me oh. two years ago, three years ago, that I would be in the middle of a political movement. I would have said, "Put down Hunter's crack pipe right now." Yeah.